This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Where to begin in these troubled times? I think for today's program, we're going to do a reverse flow of time. We're going to look into the future in the beginning and then look at where we are as we move along and then look in the past a bit. Then we may circle back around to the future. But you know, even in these uncertain times, I think we would do well to start off today's show with a joke. Because frankly, we think you need to keep your sense of humor. So here goes. It's a short one. As Gerald McGee pulled out the last of the rolls of toilet paper from the package in September of the year 2034, he realized it was the last one that his parents had bought and sequestered back in 2020. The question on everyone's mind is what is going to happen in the future? And although we here at Radio Parallax don't have a crystal ball that works better than anyone else's, we'll take a stab at it. As this pandemic continues to unfold, there are some people showing quite a bit of optimism. Others are finding a great deal to be pessimistic about. I I think in most cases looking into the future, we find that what happens lies somewhere in between. Meaning I think we should be surprised if this evolves in the direction of the worst case scenario, but I think we should also be surprised if this goes in the direction of the best case scenario. We're going to try and be optimistic today, so I think what we should do maybe at this point is start out with something that is bound to be a ray of sunshine. Larry Brilliant, the epidemiologist who helped the world defeat smallpox and is currently the chairman of the board of Ending Pandemics, has been quoted quite a bit of late. I think it's fair to say he would definitely not be included among the most optimistic forecasters. Asked by Stephen Levy for Wired.com, is this the worst outbreak you've ever seen? He responded, it's the most dangerous pandemic in our lifetime. But here's the ray of sunshine I just mentioned. Asked about flattening the curve, Brilliant said, by slowing it down or flattening it, we're not going to decrease the total number of cases. We're going to postpone many cases until we get a vaccine which we will, because there's nothing in the virology that makes me frightened that we won't get a vaccine in 12 to 18 months. Eventually, we will get the epidemiologist's gold ring. That does not appear to be an isolated opinion. Researchers are very optimistic that they will have a vaccine for coronavirus, meaning that even if COVID-19 becomes something that is going to rear its ugly head every year, as does the flu, we will have an A1 tool with which to combat it. Since there is reason for optimism here, let's, let's talk about the article in New Scientist magazine titled Race for a Vaccine. A piece by Carrie Arnold notes that on the morning of the 31st of December of last year, Kate Broderick scrolled through the headlines while waiting for her tea to brew And one story caught her eye, a mysterious outbreak of severe pneumonia in Wuhan, China. Nearly overnight, the number of cases seemed to explode. She said, I knew we didn't have time to wait. Broderick is a molecular geneticist at Innovic Pharmaceuticals in California. 
She was poised for what came next. When Chinese officials published the genetic sequence of the new SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus causing the illness just two weeks after the first cases were reported to the WHO, Broderick got to work. Within three hours, her team had a prototype vaccine ready for initial testing. It was an unprecedented turnaround, but a moment Broderick and many others had long seen coming. Making vaccines usually takes a decade or more between development, safety testing, and manufacturing, says Seth Berkeley, head of Gavi, an international group that promotes vaccine use around the world. With global confirmed cases of the new disease, COVID-19 surging past 180,000, that's old news, as this went to press, time is of the essence. Article notes to speed things up, scientists are turning to untested classes of vaccine and rethinking every part of how they're designed, evaluated, and manufacturing. If the approach works, we will, for the first time, have identified a new disease and developed a vaccine against it while the initial outbreak is still going on. But speed can come with downsides. Gary Kobinger, virologist at Laval University in Canada, said, We could have a vaccine in three weeks, but we can't guarantee its safety or efficacy. The hope is to have at least one million doses of coronavirus vaccine available to the public in 12 to 18 months, according to Melanie Saville. She's the head of vaccine development and research for, at the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, CEPI, which was set up in 2017 with funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, also the Wellcome Trust, and several governments. Until now, the fastest we have ever cranked out a vaccine in response to an outbreak was Ebola, and that took five years, said Berkeley. 18 months to make a new vaccine widely available is naively optimistic, said Kobinger. It isn't impossible, but it may mean ripping up the rule book. All vaccines work by tricking the body into believing it has been exposed to a pathogen. This causes the immune system to respond with antibodies and T-cells to neutralize or kill the invader. Afterwards, some of these remain in circulation, ready for action, in case you were exposed to the actual infection. In other words, your immune system is primed. The more closely a vaccine mimics the disease, the more protection it will provide. I'm not going to read the whole article, but um, another reason for some optimism that they cite is the fact that this isn't the first coronavirus to cause trouble. Turns out we learned a lot when a previous coronavirus got loose on the world back in 2003. That was SARS, another coronavirus, which generated quite a bit of study. The fear at that time was that it was going to become a pandemic. Lucky for us, it did not succeed. But the viruses are similar. Research on SARS showed that the human immune system responded most strongly to the protein spikes that form the crown or corona surrounding the virus. Coronavirus is named for the fact that in, in early microscopic pictures, it looked like a crown. We now know, with better picture-taking, that it, it looks more like an old naval mine. By now, you've, you've all seen pictures of it. The more we know about the structure of the virus, what makes it up, the different proteins that it has, the more we can devise ways to attack each of its components. I have not seen this confirmed yet, but it certainly is reasonable to assume that people who had had SARS back in 2003 would have at least partial immunity to this current pandemic. We can expect studies to be done on that in the not-too-distant future. Now, it's not a free ride with the vaccines. There are concerns that something called immune enhancement can be involved. This can happen when a prior vaccination or infection inadvertently facilitates a virus's ability to enter cells and make copies of itself. 
It means that instead of protecting you, the vaccine could make you vulnerable to more severe infection. The article notes that harmful immune enhancement was seen in early animal trials of SARS vaccine. Also in human trials of a vaccine for a respiratory virus called RSV, respiratory syncytial virus. This is why you have to do testing. The piece notes that striking the balance between speed and safety is always going to be a challenge. If a vaccine takes too long to develop, the initial outbreak may be over, which creates its own set of problems. For example, by the time clinical trials of an Ebola vaccine were underway during a large outbreak that began in West Africa in 2014, disease transmission had slowed so much that researchers couldn't treat enough people to gather the robust data needed for regulatory approval. Although I do think it's fair to say in this case, that's not going to be an issue. And one thing's for sure, there's going to be no shortage of funding from private organizations and governments around the world to stop this thing, barring a miraculous disappearance of it. You know, I think it's, it's clear even to Donald Trump's rabid base that at this point, it, yeah, we really can't call it a democratic hoax. We'll have more to say about Mr. Trump before we're through today. Anyway, it seems clear that at some point, perhaps within 12 to 18 months, we will have a vaccine. And of course, at some point, according to Larry Brilliant, a large enough quantity of us will have caught the disease and become immune to where if you take A, people that are immune, and B, a vaccine, and combine them, we will have herd immunity. That occurs when about 70 or 80% of the population is not susceptible. I want to thank everybody who's been sending me emails over the past week. Been a lot of valuable information exchanged. Earlier in the week when I mentioned the possibility of using immune globulin to fight this thing, I discovered that most folks didn't know much about that at all. Governor Cuomo in New York, I understand, is now talking about it, so the word's getting out. The one thing you can do is take the antibodies from people who have successfully fought off the disease, separate them from their blood, and give them to others. If you're a woman who has given birth in America, who is RH negative, you have already received this type of therapy. For women who are RH negative, a shot of Rogam is administered for the purpose of cleaning up some of these proteins from RH positive blood cells that might be present in the fetus's bloodstream. The fetus may have picked up a positive RH factor from dad. Since there's a bit of leakage between the blood of the mother and the blood of the fetus, although they're generally fairly well separated, what can happen is that these proteins can leak into mom's blood supply and her immune system kicks into high gear because it thinks it's under attack. Foreign proteins on the scene. When the body sees such things, it assumes that they are an invading army that needs to be defeated. So mom makes antibody, it attacks the blood cells, can destroy the blood cells, and then the baby can have some problems with anemia. But if you administer some immune globulin, to go in there and attack those proteins and make them disappear, well, then it cools the whole process down. At this point in time, they're saying something like 70,000 people in China have had the disease and cleared it. Maybe they'll start selling us some of their immune globulin. Of course, the way things are going, we're not going to need to get that from the Chinese. This is old technology. One friend of mine who hadn't heard it looked it up and said, my God, this goes back 50 years. It's true, it does. 
Many decades ago, yours truly decided to take a trip around the world, which which I did, and I was going to go to a lot of places that were, well, underdeveloped nations. Facing a possible onslaught of pathogens, I decided to get a shot of gamma globulin, which again is basically antibodies collected from a lot of different people who've been exposed to a lot of different things, and presumably some of those people were exposed to things that you will encounter. So I got the shot, knowing that six months down the road, at the very best, I'd have to get another one. It so happened when I arrived at that six-month time frame, I was in Kathmandu. I began searching for someone who could sell me another shot of immune globulin. And wouldn't you know it, in the stalls on the marketplace, I found a guy that had some. I took a very close look at the label. It seemed to have come from either a Swiss or French company, I wasn't sure. So I I bought myself some, jumped over the counter, and had the guy shoot me in the butt. I can't say for sure that it worked, but in 11 months abroad, I never did contract traveler's diarrhea. When I was in Australia, a man asked me about immunoglobulin treatments. What did I think of it? I said, I'd taken them and planned to do so. And he said, well, you know, it's funny. I... A bunch of us went to a South America some time ago, and they offered us the shot, and some of us took it and some of us didn't. Although I don't remember his exact numbers, it was something along the lines of nine of the 11 who didn't take the shot got sick, whereas zero of the eight who did did not get sick. Anyway, I don't want to go on about this, but it is an old tried and true technology that you know does have some value to us in this current pandemic. And we should note that there is good news when it comes to finding drugs to counter the COVID-19. Leading the pack, according to New Scientist magazine, is remdesivir, an experimental antiviral drug now undergoing large trials in patients in China and the U.S., including 13 people who are on the Diamond Princess cruise ship. It's hoped that the drug, which failed in trials against Ebola in 2014, but did pass safety tests, can stop the COVID-19 virus replicating by blocking a crucial enzyme. Trials are also planned for Caletra, a combination of two anti-HIV drugs that stops viral replication. It has reportedly worked on COVID-19 in China. And as you've no doubt heard by now, chloroquine, an anti-malarial drug that most malaria is now resistant to, might also hold some promise. Studies suggest that it stops the related SARS virus replicating, and there was a small study done, cited in some of those Trumpian press conferences, that a combination of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin did a great job in a small sampling of affected patients. Trump had to be corrected when he was talking about how optimistic he was that this drug would work by Anthony Fauci saying that, you know, it's, it's a small sample, we need more data. But yes, it's, 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 it's good to be optimistic. And you may also have heard by now that uh, there was a couple that decided to take some chloroquine that was being used, I guess, to kill protozoan diseases in fish tanks. So the couple decided to try it. The guy died. The woman evidently threw it up quick enough to where she did not succumb. I should mention that a friend of mine begged me to write him for hydroxychloroquine. I decided to see what would happen. So we called the pharmacy. They took my prescription for hydroxychloroquine, but then informed the patient and I that anesthesiologists down in Los Angeles had requested that this be held in reserve for people who were sick and needed it. They only had enough for a couple prescriptions anyway, which I thought was a bit of a surprise. 
I imagine that's because they'd already been cleaned out by people that heard about this study. Also, a lot of people were passing out uh, some messages here and there saying that, oh my God, this is not a drug you want to take for a long period of time. Well, people won't be taking it for a long period of time. There's a good chance, dear listener, that you might have taken it when you've gone to a malarial-prone area. Of course, that would have been years ago. There's such a widespread resistance now to that particular drug that it's seldom used anymore. But anyway, we sure do know how to make it, and I think the world's supplies of it are probably still ample, so there's hope there. Another approach they can use is to use proteins called monoclonal antibodies. They can target specific viruses for destruction by our immune system. Veer Biotechnology in the U.S. has made monoclonal antibodies for the COVID-19 virus for an experimental diagnostic test. It now plans with a Chinese firm to test them as a treatment. Apparently more than one firm is out there trying to work on those antibodies. Now monoclonal antibodies are a little bit different than what I was just talking about, harvesting immune globulin from cells. The immune globulins are the antibodies, but someone discovered many years back, before I went to medical school even, that uh, if you took certain cancer cells, you could induce them to become basically antibody factories. An antibody that's called toxilizumab is already being used in China to block interleukin-2 in people with COVID-2. Interleukin-2 is a signaling molecule that can trigger the lethal runaway immune response that can kill people in severe cases as is the case with a lot of diseases, and apparently COVID's one of them, it's your body's own overzealous defense mechanisms gone, well, running amok, that can prove fatal. Although this article does not mention it, my understanding is that they're holding steroids in reserve. Steroids can be very good at suppressing inflammation, and when people are experiencing runaway inflammation, this may be something else that can help. So, looking down the road a bit, it appears that medical science is sure to develop some useful tools in dealing with coronavirus. But how's it looking right now? Well, let's start with the fact that in the Chinese province of Hubei, of which Wuhan is a part, the lockdown is going to be lifted. As of March 25th, Chinese authorities said they will end a two-month lockdown of most of coronavirus hit Hubei province at midnight. I guess that was last midnight. People with a clean bill of health will be allowed to leave, the provincial government said. The city of Wuhan, where the outbreak started in late December, will remain locked down until April 8th. This is good news. The infection rate in China appears to have slowed to a crawl. But personally, I don't think there's as much room for optimism in that as some think. The Chinese took steps that we are not going to take here in America. If you tested positive over there, bam, you were quarantined. They then did research to find out who your contacts were. And my understanding is they were put in quarantine. And although nobody's talking about it very much, it appears that people's cell phones were used to locate where they had been. And that was part of what was going to be put in isolation. The South Koreans definitely did this. As we look to the future here in America, many are talking about how companies can be able to tell where people have been. They'll be able to trace contacts by the same proven technique. So if Joe Blow, who turns out to have been infected, visited the Lucky Market yesterday, and they do some research to determine that you were in the Lucky Market at the same time, well, you might get a knock on your door. I don't know. William Barr 
came forward to say that if you're hoarding stuff, you can expect a knock on the door. I don't think we need to worry about that too much. Barr seems way too busy at the moment trying to eliminate constitutional protections of people's rights. It is curious, in China, the thing they're worried about is that it, that it may bounce back, and they're very concerned that people will return from other countries and reintroduce it. If you fly into Beijing these days, you can expect to be sequestered away for two weeks. This whole thing has certainly strained relations between America and China. Among other things, they were apparently offended by President Trump referring to the coronavirus as the China virus, which is the least of his crimes. But uh, remarkably, the Chinese government has been pushing a conspiracy theory that the coronavirus originated in a U.S. biodefense lab. Zhao Lijian, spokesman for China's foreign ministry, leapt on a video of Robert Redfield, director for the Center for Disease Control, telling Congress last month that some earlier deaths in the U.S. attributed to influenza were in fact caused by COVID-19. Zhao claims this was evidence that the disease began in America and was brought to China by U.S. troops who attended the military world game conferences, the military world games in Wuhan last October. Tweeted Zhao, U.S. owes us an explanation. He later shared a report by a Canadian conspiracy outfit that claimed the virus leaked from a U.S. bioweapons lab. In fact, scientists agree the virus originated as an exotic animal. From what I've read, it seems pretty clear that the coronavirus is very similar to viruses that have been circulating in bats. Although they believe that, as was the case with SARS, it passed from bats into an intermediate animal before it then got into us. But we should note that last month, a senior official of China's National Health Commission, Lang Wenan, said at a briefing in Beijing that the likely carrier was a pangolin, an endangered species which they eat in China. Although I think in this case, he's thinking the pangolin may have been the intermediate host. It seems pretty clear from you know what I can see that uh, this is a bat virus. Having a lot of time on my hands the last week, like the rest of us, I decided to uh, pick up a book that's been sitting on my shelf for the past couple of decades, The Hot Zone. It got rave reviews when it came out, and I can see why. It's a hell of a book. It's pretty good on epidemiology, explaining how it is that the natural host for a virus uh, tends to be something that does not make the animal sick. In fact, I think I'll quote a little bit from that book before we're through today. But at the moment, let's, let's talk about, again, best-case scenario, worst-case scenario. There's quite an excellent piece on, on this very topic in the New York Times by Nicholas Kristof. He summarized the best-case scenario as, looking forward to March 2021, life largely has returned to normal by the late summer of 22, and the economy has rebounded strongly. Of course, included in this was the possibility that by February of 2021, 20, vaccinations were introduced worldwide and the virus was conquered. The worst-case scenario was summarized as following. More than 2 million Americans have died. That's directly from the virus. Countless others have died because hospitals are too overwhelmed to deal adequately with heart attacks, asthma, and diabetes, etc. The economy has crashed into a depression for fiscal and monetary policy proved ineffective when people fear going out and businesses are closed. In this scenario, the vaccine is still far off and immunity among those who have recovered proved fleeting. And to make it worse, the coronavirus has joined the seasonal flu as a recurring peril. 
Now, on the optimistic side, we have Michael Levitt, Nobel laureate and Stanford biophysicist. He began analyzing the number of COVID cases in January and calculated that China would get through the worst of its corona outbreak long before other health experts had predicted. He now foresees a similar outcome in the U.S. and the rest of the world. But in the article about this in the L.A. Times, they said this, while many epidemiologists are warning of months, even years, of massive social disruption and millions of deaths, Levitt says the data simply doesn't support such a dire scenario, especially in areas where reasonable social distancing measures are in place. What we need to control, he said, is panic. In the grand scheme, we're going to be fine. Well, no matter what, I think that's undeniable. This is only killing worst-case scenarios. Say it's 2%. It's probably a lot less than that. But if you still have 98% of the human race around, well, it's not exactly the apocalypse. On the other hand, the disease has now arrived in India and Africa. According to Levitt in this article that's now three days old, he blames the media for causing unnecessary panic by focusing on the relentless increases of the accumulated number of cases and spotlighting celebrities who contracted the virus. He notes, by contrast, the flu has sickened 36 million Americans since September and killed an estimated 22,000, according to the CDC. But those deaths are largely unreported. Well, that's true, so far as we know. And, and of course, here's another bit of optimism from New Scientist magazine. They're saying that hospital wards run by robots can spare staff from catching the virus. And the article has a picture of people wearing face masks hanging around a robot in China. I don't want to completely scoff at this. I mean, robots delivering food, drinks, and drugs to patients and keeping the ward clean probably has some value to this endeavor. But as we jump back and forth between positive and negative, let me, let me report this, which just came into me from, I guess you'd say, a friend of mine. He posted this on Facebook. The following is a post from my daughter-in-law. She is a physician at the Long Beach VA. Said she, you guys, we're screwed. We've been waiting a week for COVID testing to come back on two of our patients. The VA cut off computer access to one of my physician colleagues because he hadn't completed some online training, ironically for privacy, which is not being enforced during the pandemic. I am wearing the same flimsy mask for the third day in a row. I'm seriously considering using my husband's army era gas mask. We have to use the same disinfecting wipe for an entire day. Our caregivers are pulling plastic bags off of new deliveries and wearing them to provide bowel, bladder care, and showers because we have no gowns. This is what we're talking about when it comes to overwhelming the health care system and seeing deaths rise. used to work in the Long Beach VA when I was in medical school, and at that time it was the largest VA hospital in the system. I presume it still is. If the conditions are like that in Long Beach... I imagine they're worse in Paducah, Kentucky. And uh, by the way, the the girlfriend of that correspondent, an old, old pal of mine, um, posted something that um, I'm going to have to quote in our second segment just for a bit of comedy relief. Black comedy relief, but comedy relief. But we need to take a break, so let's do that. If you feel like washing your hands right now, go ahead. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Sanitizer, hot water, wash them till they're blue. Wash your dirty hands so you don't get the flu. Wash your hands. Wow, 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 wow. Wash your hands. Wow, 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 wow. When you're giving high fives, try not to touch your eyes. Don't pick things off the street. 
touch the toilet seat. 